I'm Jane Jackson. And I'm Colin Denny. And you're listening to A Better Workplace from Westia. Hey folks, Jane here. Today we're picking up on the topic we started in our discussion of double standards and stereotypes. After hearing the stories of Yolanda, a black woman who spends extra time crafting emails so as not to come across as the stereotypical angry black woman, and her own show producer, Ron, a black man sharing his story of being pegged as confrontational in a previous job based on his communication style, it's clear there's a lot to unpack and understand. We reached out to Krista Wilson of Krista Wilson and Associates. Krista is a DEI consultant who works with and trains companies and organizations to create environments where marginalized groups can feel not only a part of the team, but a genuine sense of belonging. Actually, thinking back to our conversation, Krista shared some valuable perspective on the term marginalized groups for companies to consider as they approach this work. We learned a lot from this conversation and we hope you do too. So we're gonna dive right in. Colin and I will be back after the interview to talk a little bit more about what we took away from the chat. Here's our conversation. See you on the other side. Krista, in this episode, we're talking about double standards and stereotypes in the workplace. And so I'm wondering if you have some perspective when you come into companies to help structure trainings or anti-racist work, what should folks know about where these stereotypes are coming from and the overall impact on the workplace culture that you're trying to create and and really on individuals in the company? Yeah. Oh my gosh. How much time do we have? (laughs) I mean, I have a whole training portfolio of like 30 hours of trainings, you know, hundreds of slide decks uh, to answer your question. I mean, the long story short of it, uh, where does it come from, right? It comes from 400 years of structural racism in our country. So when we talk about, for example, implicit bias, we have biases. You actually have to ask a pre-question. Where do these biases come from? Biases against what? What's preferred? And when you start to ask those questions, you always come back to this very scary word. It's so scary, in fact, that in my training, just to bring a levity, I started to put a picture. Do y'all know who Pennywise is? You know, or it, the clown from yeah, it. The, the clown? Yeah, the white yeah, face, yeah. scary clown from it. That's the slide that I put up in my training as the lead up. So I'll be like, it's a scary word. Are you ready? We're going to go there. And people are like, what is it? Oh, I don't know. And then I'll be like, white supremacy ideology. Are you ready? <laughs> right, because you have to like kind of get people ready because we don't have a, a racial literacy. Right? We don't have mm-hmm. a, which when, when I say that, I mean, in school, when I was growing up, we had the three R's, the reading, the writing, the arithmetic. We didn't have the fourth R, racial literacy. So we didn't learn about racism or race or racial bias or that white supremacy ideology, which is that whiteness is superior and blackness is inferior and everyone else is ranked based on their close, their proximity to blackness or whiteness. We don't learn all of that. And then we come into organizations and we're like, well, there's bias. We want to support diversity. We want to support inclusion. And it all goes back to this idea of white supremacy ideology. So that's really where I start. Uh, That's really where everyone should be starting. But it's not easy, right? Because it requires a level of like bravery and comfort. So I would say that's where we have to start. You mentioned it takes some bravery, some introspection, some willingness to start to question your own beliefs and how you've gotten to where you are. How do you, when you're talking to a business and they have a million different things that they're trying to prioritize, and this can be really scary to get started because you're going to get stuff wrong, how do you coach organizations or encourage them to start taking the first steps? And What are those early things that organizations can start to do rather than getting stuck in the mud, afraid to do anything, and really just perpetuating the situation by doing nothing? 
Yeah, good question. Um, if you do anything with boats, if you're a sailor, um, or even if we think about, um, this is so on the nose, I don't mean it to be, but like the Underground Railroad, to, to get to freedom, um, you know, uh, Africans who are seeking freedom would, would look for Polaris, the North Star, right? The North Star is the brightest star in the sky. It is uh, a beacon, right? If you follow that North Star, it's guiding you um, to, to liberation, to, to freedom, Metaphorically, a North Star for an effort, an initiative, a change effort, an organization, a North Star is the beacon. It's the anchor that's grounding the organization and guiding it to where it wants to be. So when I work with organizations, I say first, what is your North Star related to this work that you want to do about diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism. I was at a job the other day and someone said, we're doing Jedi. And I knew that they weren't talking about Star Wars, but I legit did know that acronym. And I know pretty much all of them. It's justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. But the point is, what is the North Star? And get tight around that vision and that message. Because then when you mess up, you make a mistake, you try strategy and it doesn't land, you go back to the thing that's anchoring your organization. The thing that happened this summer, George Floyd was murdered. We found out about Ahmaud Aubrey. We found out about Breonna Taylor all in that week. Even though Ahmaud's murder happened in February, Breonna's murder happened in March, George happened in May, we all found out about it in May. And then everybody went out on Instagram, Black Lives Matter, you know, and they did these campaigns. 60% of them aren't doing squat now in November. They didn't have a North Star. They just had a strategy. So what I offer organizations is to not perpetuate harm, to not be a flash in the pan. Get yourself a North Star to be super focused and clear about what you're wanting to do and why. That really is, that's really first. That's the first step. I'm sure you've worked with some organizations where they've really committed and made some progress. I'm curious if you have some North Stars that you found organizations rallied really well around and were great for kind of keeping the momentum as we think about folks trying to think about what their North Star could be. You know, how grand do you go? How focused do you go when you're thinking as an organization about the scope of what you want to commit to and making sure that you have a really good guiding principle? largely what's required is assessing what do you have the capacity to do? So if you're an organization and you've got, and you say, we want to create a more just and equitable world and you got 20 staff and no money. That's, that's, that's not guiding, you know, it's, it's aspirational, but, but when the going gets tough and your staff are burned out and people feel extracted, that's not going to help galvanize your folks. So, I always say the North Star should be, it can be aspirational. We want to create a more just and equitable world. And we're starting in this organization, right? So it's about what feels the right fit for the organization. The other thing too is that a North Star isn't, it's not the the tactics, it's not the things that you're going, going to do. It really is the vision. And and this is what, what I want to be clear about. Um, for example, organizations say, we care about diversity, equity, inclusion. We're going, to, we're going to start doing that now. That's not a North Star. That's you saying you're going to do some stuff. A North Star is where you feel it somatically, like in your guts. Like, this is a moral cry. We have to do something about this for these reasons. And it is mission critical that we pick up the mantle of race, equity, diversity, and inclusion, or whatever the words are. Like, I'm talking about getting in the guts with it. So that's not just a, a throwaway line. We care about anti-racism. We, we, we want to be an anti-racist organization. I hear that all the time. And then I come back to clients, what does that mean for you? And it's crickets. So the North Star is more about what does it mean to you? What does your stake in this? And it could be, Looking at your organization. I work with clients, you know, some of them might hear this and be like, are you talking about me? Uh, But I have worked with organizations (laughs) over the last 15 years. um, 
And they'll say that they want to do DEI or anti-racism work, right? And I'll say, amazing, I'm with you. I'm all about racial justice. I'm your partner in this. And then I'll talk to staff and it's the most inequitable, uh, racially harmful, toxic workplace. And I'm thinking to myself, and I'll tell them straight out, you don't need to be transforming the world. You should be transforming your own organization. Like that's where you can do the, the, the greatest good, right? So it, it, this idea about right-sizing it, it's about right-sizing your North Star too, right? What is it about diversity, equity, inclusion, racial equity, whatever your acronyms are, what is it that you're wanting to do and why? That's that North Star and being clear about it so that so that you have a clear direction and you're anchoring your decisions, your budget, how you treat staff. It's shaping your organizational culture. Um, it's shaping your direction and the decisions that you make as an organization when the going gets tough, right? That's what I mean by the North Star. You mentioned something about going into organizations and they have these grand plans and then you get into talking to the people who actually work there and see this super disconnect. It's certainly something I've encountered where you see sexism or racism play out in things like feedback and reviews where you have, you know, certain words that you see more frequently attributed to people of color in certain feedback or with women getting certain feedback. But when you talk to managers, they're just not able to see that they're using words like bossy with women or confrontational with black men. And how do you kind of get under the hood and start to do the work where people are able to see those red flags or see those trigger words and really get to to the root of some of these issues to start to address them? Part of it is the example that you gave. Oftentimes it lives within the individual experience. So for example, black woman gets a performance review it's called bossy, and then that experience lives in her body. Her, it's her experience, right? It doesn't, it doesn't live in the organization's lived experience. So part of what, what we have to do is make it the organization's holding that some people are getting biased reviews and some aren't. So it shifts the burden of that from an individual holding it to the organization. Part of how you do that is, is you have to raise the awareness that it's happening. So part one of that is how do we start having a, an open conversation about performance feedback, right? So that there's a space where, you know, it doesn't just happen like on the side where people are saying, I got called bossy. You did. I did too. Oh my God, I can't believe it. All the women, like it's happening on the side. How does that happen where it's part of the organization structure that that gets elevated? Who's auditing performance reviews to be able to track, hmm, I'm noticing coded, gendered language here. Women are bossy, men are assertive, interesting, right? I see this, oh, well, uh, women who are, you know, Asian are, are seen as passive versus like reflective or introspective. Those are other words you could use besides passive, right? This is These are things I've seen in my work, right? So I'm, I'm offering that part one is really that the organization is holding this assessment. The second part of this I would offer is that there needs to be an awareness also of, of what do you call the example that you just gave? So I mentioned that at the root of all of this is, is white supremacy because behind racism is white supremacy. Behind implicit bias is, is racial, racial prejudices. Um, when we talk about coded language, we talk about, you know, different performance reviews, it's so critical that we understand about implicit biases and how that shows up in performance reviews, how that shows up in who gets mentored and who gets hired. Beyond the word implicit bias, there's also affinity bias. So that's something that happens too. Affinity bias means, uh, I grew up in Georgia, for example. So if I find out that uh, my subordinate also grew up in Georgia, I might like subconsciously start mentoring that person from Georgia. Not because I'm like, I'm going to go out of my way and only support the person from Georgia, but I just might because inherently humans are attracted to people that are like us. But oftentimes that has a racial flair and because of racism, who it typically ends up in power are not equity-seeking groups like women, Black, Indigenous, people of color. It's, you know, white folks and men. 
So affinity bias can have then racial harm. So there has to be a leveled up awareness about how bias shows up in performance reviews and who gets mentored and who gets hired. Um, and when I've done training on this, it's been amazing how management has said, oh, wow, I do that. And then the third part of it is, okay, so now that we know we all have bias because we're hooked up in the matrix, like that movie, we're pumped with, you know, biases, beliefs, assumptions, and associations. The third part is how do we get, start to disrupt those biases, right? That's the harder part. It can be done, but it's work. You don't go to a training and then you're not biased, right? The training is raising the awareness that we have it and what it looks like. The organization has to then commit to how do we start to interrupt what you're naming, right? That that there are gender biases or racial biases in, in many parts of our organization. Yeah. And it feels to me like structural and systemic racism is are, are largely, if not exclusively, like tools of dehumanization. And it feels like to me the most difficult things to do here is to like reinsert humanization into the workplace where, you know, we're, we've been conditioned to think that like, um, you know, work life, home life, personal life, those are not intersectional and separate and everything. And so I'm just wondering uh, where would you say the best place to start to, to kind of bring uh, to, about that change and, and pivot of thinking to like reinsert uh, humanization into the workplace and kind of prioritize people first? Because I feel, in my opinion, that's like the only way this, this gets accomplished. Yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right. I always tell, I just had this exact conversation on, on yesterday, actually. You know, the logo of my business it's a bunch of concentric circles with waves. And without going into it, the reason it is that, this idea of layers, that first layer that starts the ripple effects of transformation, it's the people. Organizations aren't anything except co collections of folks. So if people aren't well, they're not supported. If they're not seen as just instruments for extraction, you will never lead transformation that sticks. Right. Hashtag. But for real, though, you won't. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like it is about, you know, I use this language about human centered transformation, you know, and I, there are some people that are like, Chris, you always make it about slavery. But here I go, because it is right. You know, our country mm -hmm. are everything about this country. You, I mean, I'm a researcher. That's my that's my that's my degree. That's my governance history. Uh, that is what I that's my what I've studied. So when I say mm -hmm. that you can trace everything in this country back to, you know, the systems of of enslavement and settler colonialism, which allowed the land theft of Native peoples, you can trace modern day educational systems, policing, um, healthcare. You could trace it all back, right? Even production, mm -hmm. the way that corporations are structured, mirrors plantation capitalism. That is that is factual. So to your question. We can't have corporations or even nonprofit ones that are operating like plantation capitalism, which is about dehumanization, and expect us to have successful efforts that are about inclusion, diversity, equity, and access, right? So this is a conversation I was having with a client on Monday, and right, the short of it is this. At the center of all of this, we have to be asking ourselves, how do we put people first? Right? How do we put the dignity and the humanity of people first? When we're mm -hmm. talking about racial equity, what we're beyond the jargon, what we're actually saying is, how do we ensure that the dignity and the humanity of every person in this organization is seen so that their race is not an indicator of the amount of burden they have to carry or the uh, amount of success that they, you know, unfairly earn, right? That's what we're saying about racial equity. Take out the jargon. When we say inclusion, what we're saying is how do we make sure that the full humanity of somebody is seen and they belong, right? Because some groups haven't belonged. They haven't been included. So an inclusion effort is saying we want them, them to be included. Who's <laughs> them, right? Right. We don't ever say that. We just say inclusion, diversity. Well, who wasn't diverse, right? Who are we trying to bring in? right? It's, it's non-white folks. So we don't ever call a thing a thing. We don't ever center humanity. So I just feel like that is really mission critical to any 
DEI or alphabet soup initiative, mm-hmm. um, that I do think it's loss, right? How do we have human-centered, joy-filled efforts, right? I, I do think that is important. I'm glad you raised it. You talked about training, and I did look on your website, and you have a gajillion different seminars that look super engaging and super healthy. Oh, they're boring. Um, They're horrible. They're so boring. (laughs) But, like, (laughs) the reality is, I think a lot of people, when they think about training required by their work, have this, like, visceral reaction of, like, ugh, I need to do a training And particularly when you're talking about things like training on bias or training about anti-harassment, as an HR person, you see that oftentimes people offer training and it actually has the opposite of the intended effect because it becomes this joke to people and they don't engage with it. So I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about what makes a successful training, you know, how do you make this not a failure and make sure that it doesn't make a situation worse, despite whatever your intent is? Yeah, I'm going to answer your question. But to do that, I wanted to just pause for a second. I want you to imagine and looking at the two of you, you don't have to imagine very hard that you are part of any group, a gender nonconforming group, woman, a a racial group, a group that experiences discrimination. I want you just to imagine that you're a part of those groups. Again, you don't have to imagine hard. (laughs) And I want you to feel what it feels like to be told you're not good enough, that you can't have something that you worked hard for, To, to, to to just feel that, to know how hard you've worked for something and to watch somebody else get it to be consistently denied access to something that you watch other people less qualified to get. Just feel it. Don't think about it. Just feel how it feels in your body, right? You might feel it in your throat, a tightness. You might feel it in your stomach, your shoulders tighten up, right? That's a somatic experience. It means that when we think about discrimination or prejudice or racism or worse, It's not an intellectual thing. We don't have bad thoughts about it. We feel it in the body. And for all folks that are, and I don't use the word marginalized, right? I use equity-seeking groups because we're we're seeking equity. And then I don't want to be labeled by what we've been through. I want to be labeled by what we're trying to get, right? So Mm -hmm. equity-seeking groups. For many of us, the somatic experiences also look like beatings, maimings and murder. So when we talk about DEI or racism, it is a visceral conversation. It is a visceral and somatic experience. So we are not going to train and intellectualize our way to a not racist, anti-racist world. We're just not going to do it. We have to embody it. And that means all folks, even folks who have never been a part of an equity-seeking population. That is why these trainings often fail, because they are cookie-cutter slide decks that somebody made with great information, but a slide deck that's slick with beautiful slides and videos that's a 30-minute or one-hour situation for 800 employees ain't going to do it. It's just not. And that's what I don't do. So the trainings that I create are all senses. I almost said sensual. That sounds like a whole different other thing. (laughs) But it's engaging all the senses. It really is engaging the brain. So critical thinking, right? I'm not telling you. I'm I'm posing some information, right? Because I have expertise. But I'm also engaging your critical thinking skills, right? What do you think it takes to enslave another human being? What do you think that feels like? Right? Just think about it. I don't have the answer. Just think about it. Put yourself there. Right? Right? Critical thinking skills to really build that muscle that I think has gotten lazy in the last three decades. Also, we don't have racial literacy. So I'm trying to make up for what some people didn't get. I also want to bring our whole bodies into it. Right? We'll watch a video about something. How do you feel about it? Like, I want you to have a gut check about it. I want you to get angry. I want you to get impassioned. I want you to care. 
because that's what's going to fuel you to push a DEI effort when your boss gets on your nerves, when you're overworked, when you don't want to do it. That North Star is calling you to to step up and you want to do it because you feel it in your guts. Like, I got to do this because that North Star is saying we got to we got to move this thing. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's what my trainings are about. And what's on my website, that is me putting stuff out to the public. But when I work with an organization, that's customized. So when when a client hires me for a training, they're not getting what I'm doing on my website because the website's just more for anybody who's buying a ticket. When I work with an organization, I'm also asking, what is going on in y'all's organization? And what do y'all specifically need to know, do? And what are your questions? So for example, I have this client right now. I'm like, what's actually going on? Y'all keep saying interpersonal dynamics. That's code for something. And it came up that it's a bunch of microaggressions, coded racial language, racial aggressions. So that bias training is going to have a whole new module on stuff that's specific to them so that it's relevant and it resonates, right? That's what most trainings don't do. It doesn't, it doesn't bring it home. It's not real. So that's how I would answer that, that uh, question. I'm Southern, so I will go all long-winded. But I get there. I get back <laughs> to the question. That, that I do do. <laughs> I understand. Sometimes I feel like I'll, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll make my point about three different ways because I want to take all routes. <laughs> they say to stop and smell, right? So Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Bringing it back to double standards and stereotypes, people in equity-seeking groups, they're, they're just having a different experience at work. And so if I'm a CEO or someone in a leadership position who's fired up and who's looking for that North Star and wants people to come in and just have a better overall workplace experience, where would you tell me to start? Yeah. Here I go again. <laughs> but the, the thing that comes to mind, I love a metaphor because I think it helps paint a picture, right? And, and I try to move away from jargon in this field. That's the thing that separates me from all my colleagues. We love a jargon. We love a catchphrase. I want to tell a story, but I'll keep it brief. I, I mentioned that I'm Southern, even though the accent's long gone. Um, but I come from a long line of farmers. I do mean also enslaved workers, but but actually my, my grandparents and my dad too. And if you know anything about farming, before you plant seeds, you have to actually make sure the soil is good. And so people who farm their land, they put their hands in that soil. They know that ground, that that soil is fertile, or they know if it needs fertilizer. They know if they need to wait a season, but they don't plant seeds until they know that that ground is good and that things are going to grow and thrive. And my metaphor for that is, is as people talk about, we want to have more diversity. We want to have an inclusive culture. We're going to start recruiting and have a diversity campaign. Don't do that. Don't try to bring in more seeds if your soil is not fertile. And what I'm saying is a lot of cultures and organizations aren't fertile for equity-seeking populations. It's just not. The seeds aren't thriving. The seeds that you have right now are not thriving. The people of color, the Black Indigenous folks, women, gender nonconforming folks, other folks are not thriving. And part of it is that the cultures aren't supportive of those folks. So one thing that's important to do is a culture audit. You ask folks, do you feel like you belong? Right? Inclusion is one thing. Are you included? Do you, are you allowed to go to the meeting? You know, mm-hmm. Did you get a job? Right? Inclusion could be one thing, but belonging, there's a whole body of work. Of, uh, you could Google it. Uh, inclusion and belonging. Belonging means do you feel you actually are welcomed? Do you feel seen and and like you're needed there? Like you belong, these are my people. Like I belong here. And most folks, even if you have an inclusion campaign, your DEI, you have inclusion, your equity-seeking folks aren't gonna say that they feel they belong. And that's where the work begins. So when you have people saying, you know, well, I have to edit my emails or I've been called out about my tone, it's because the dominant culture of that organization is not fertile ground for any other culture that's not conforming. And the dominant culture, you can Google this, it comes from Surge, organization called Surge. It's white supremacy culture. There's nine elements that they put forward as these kind of toxic organizational culture elements. I've uplifted three more in my training that I have assessed over the years. But that's, what, that's what's creating this unfertile ground 
for equity-seeking groups. So I would definitely say culture assessments are really essential. Mm. Is that something organizations should do themselves or is there value to bringing in someone external to help with that work? Well, I think that you can do it yourself. I would say the answer is about anonymity. So there are so many anonymous platforms now that you can do surveys that people can trust it. You know what I mean? There's lots of survey tools that you can use that they don't show people's email addresses. So you'll never know who said it. And your user would know that too. So I think organizations can do an anonymous poll or survey of their folks and ask questions. Like, do you feel you belong? What would make you feel like you belong? Do you have code switch fatigue, right? Or however you'd want to word that. Right, but I think organizations can do it. Now, if you have the budget, great, bring in, bring in a consultant to have them help assess your culture, but they can also then help you with strategies. How do you actually create an inclusive culture in your organization? That's a kind of a, a, a bonus of having an external consultants as well. You, you hinted at it earlier or touched on it earlier rather where like the, the inclusion piece is like the way I always like to think of it is like you, you are allowed in the room or you're, you know, you're in the room and then the equity piece is like you have a seat at the table and there's a stark difference between those two where it's like, okay, well, I'm in the room now watching these people have this conversation or make these decisions and everything. But then that sense of belonging that you were talking about, which is like having that seat at the table. And I feel like, you know, what, what I kept thinking about while, while we've been discussing this is like a bit of a callback to the humanity piece and everything and, and things that other people don't need to consider. Like just, just for using myself as an example, as, as a, a black person in tech, I am considering my blackness in yeah. the decisions that I make. Whereas like, let's be real about it. Like white folks are not considering their whiteness in the decisions that they make. And so I suppose that's, that's the thought of it all. And the question is, you know, Jane brought up gaslighting. Like, I think it's a two pronged approach. How can that be dismantled in a workplace? But then also like, you know, I feel like there's, there's work to do on my end as well. Not necessarily that it's my responsibility. It's not, but you know, uh, I, there are there are barriers I need to break down within myself as it to to assert myself and and know that I belong rather than feel like it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's like an uh, uh, a co responsibility of the workplace and individual. Like, you know, I hate using the word responsibility because I feel like Black folks are not responsible for this work. Um, I hope I'm making sense, but <laughs> you know. I mean, there's two parts of it, right? Like, I I wish, right? I mean, wishes ain't, can I cuss? I don't know. I'm not going to say it, but wishes ain't ish. Okay. But, but I wish that, you know, organizations were a place where we didn't have the double fatigue of doing our job and then having the job of interpreting how this might be perceived by others and then having to calibrate and recalibrate. Right. It's like we're we're doing uh, like we're a computer with two operating systems or something like we're, we're like doing two jobs at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. We're just like just doing the job. I wish that wasn't the case, but that is. And unfortunately, we live in a racialized society. Right? It's, it's highly racialized and racist. And so our organizations are, too, like that. It just is. And we're not going to dismantle racism right? We can chip away at it, but but we're lifetimes away from that. And so mm-hmm. there's no answer. And so one of the things that I bring into this, you know, um, as I coach equity-seeking groups, specifically women of color, but I've, I've coached, I'm coaching two men of color right now, is actually shifting their leadership stance. Because I, I can't change the systems, so I can help us change us, right? The, the point is, how we show up is what we have control over. So like for me personally, I had my own personal shift like five years ago. Like, I don't care now. Like, I just don't. And I do Mm -hmm. care. It's not that I don't care, but what I'm saying when I say like, I don't care, what I mean by that is this is who I am. I'm not gonna do this free laboring of trying to calibrate who I think you think or who I think you expect me to be. Mm -hmm. I'm just showing up how I am. And 
if it's not well received, then then we, we're going to just catch that case when we get there. Right. Because I have the tools to then debate it or argue it or litigate it or whatever I need to do when we get to that space. But I just can't and wasn't willing to do that laboring anymore. But that that was me getting coached to a place where I came to that decision of my own liberation. And perhaps that's the strategy. How do equity seeking groups get to their own individual liberation of like, I'm not doing it anymore. And maybe Mm -hmm. that's how we do one layer of transformation at an individual place as we try to make those shifts to liberate organizations, right? I I don't have the answer, but that's what I have seen uh, among the dozens of folks I've coached. Krista, this has been super helpful. If we had another hour, I would have a million other things to ask. But I just want to thank you for your time and for sharing your thoughts and all of your expertise with us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. This is this is wonderful. So a couple of weeks ago, you and I had the opportunity to talk to Krista Wilson. And I really enjoyed the conversation and I feel like I walked away with a lot to think about um, in general and then also from a business standpoint. And I'm curious how you kind of took that conversation and and some of the things that jumped out to you. Yeah, I think first and foremost, a a different terminology uh, that we've started to use across Wistia came out of that conversation where... Uh, as opposed to marginalized groups, uh, we now refer to them as equity-seeking groups, which I really liked. Uh, you know, especially, particularly the framing around it in terms of not viewing these groups so much in a pe- or you know measured against their past, but looking more towards the future and what we're trying to accomplish. So I thought that was really cool. Um, I also really enjoyed her perspective on being upfront about what DE and I work is which is making yourself comfortable with the uncomfortable. You know, it's it's a very difficult topic for a lot of companies to uh, tackle, especially when it's for the first time. And so I think I really appreciated her insight on on how, you know, the, the ways to approach that and, and the ways to make people uh, or motivate people to, to get into it. I thought the discussion about marginalized versus equity-seeking was like one of those aha moments Mm -hmm. for me too, because the word marginalized or underrepresented, for example, never really felt. It doesn't feel good. Great. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't know what a better term was. And and I think actually some of our discussions in the DE&I task force, specifically around Juneteenth, you said something to the group that seemed very aligned with what Krista, I think, put a finer point on. I don't know if you'd be willing to share or know what I'm talking about and be willing to share that. But I think it was like putting those two together was really helpful for me as we think about how to talk about this company-wide at Wistia. Yeah. So when, when we were talking about Juneteenth, one thing that I wanted for us to be very specific about is that the Black experience for uh you know for black americans and and black folks living in america is not solely rooted in pain um there there is a painful history to our people but i think it was very important to also point out that there is a lot of joy and happiness and triumph in that story as well so i wanted to make a point about juneteenth not just being about a historical reflection but also a celebration of of black joy And I think Krista talking about let's focus on what these groups are trying to achieve versus the various ways that they've been treated by society, which is not something that they've owned or had any part in, was really helpful for me. And and I think uh, pretty much the same day I started using that language because it just felt right. And uh, I thought that was a big takeaway for me that that I really um, enjoyed her perspective on. I think another one that really stood out to me, and and I think particularly this year, you see a lot of companies that are 
finally ready to get going and get started on some diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And she shared her perspective on you can't plant anything unless the soil is fertile. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really helpful in thinking about where you start as a business. And, And you see it a lot where companies focus on bringing diverse populations into the business, but the culture is poisonous and it's not ripe for, um, for inclusion or belonging and her focusing on just bringing it down. I think she used a, a farmer's analogy to making sure that your company is actually ready to grow this culture as being one of the most key components to to companies that are successful on this. Mm-hmm. That that is such a a salient point to make because I think we're already seeing some of that, right? Like we we see so many companies that like in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the protests that we saw across the country, like everybody was ready to to say something. But I think now we're seeing the difference between saying something and doing something. Yeah, absolutely. There's something that we're kind of grappling with at Wistia, which is we want to create a place where folks can continue to learn and their own personal journey on this. But when you dig into the data, so many trainings are ineffective or really have the opposite um, of what you intend. And I, I think Krista's approach to training She had us do this exercise on the call where she made us close our eyes and think about a really difficult uh, situation where we felt like um, we didn't get picked simply because either, you know, you're a black man, I'm a woman and how that made us feel. And she built on that and said the training that we do really needs to tie into people feeling those emotions, recognizing them, and making this a somatic, I believe was her terminology, experience for training to actually work. Because if it's it's just intellectual, it's not going to be effective in the long term. And for me, I just like, I don't know, did you feel anything when you had to do that that close your eyes exercise? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because it's almost double layered for me because it, it's almost like resurfacing times where it actually has happened. But I think it's a meaningful exercise for people to do regardless of if it's happened to you previously or not, because it, it takes something to really set aside time and specifically, you know, uh, the, the age old, um, <laughs> where, where they say, put yourself in someone else's shoes um, you know, we, we've heard that since, you know, the, the dawn of time, but I think to actually try and intentionally consider it, uh, is, is a meaningful, uh, exercise, especially now. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. Cause I don't think trainers that I have worked with have done that, but I very much closed my eyes and I felt the anger and I felt the mm. like, you know, ball in your stomach and chest. And I could see how if you have a training that really ties into that and ties into the human experience, we all feel some sort of letdown and can can relate to that. And using that to drive sustained effort. I think she said, you know, when when times get tough, it, it can't be an intellectual exercise. People need to feel why this matters for it to be successful in the business. And I thought that was a really um, fantastic way of phrasing it and a great foundation for building training that sticks for people that I was super excited to kind of think through further. It feels like up until recently, when people were starting to think a little bit more deeply about this, that trainings were kind of rooted in telling you the things that you shouldn't do or that you shouldn't say. And I think that the detriment in that is no one ever thinks that they're doing it. You know, like no one ever thinks that they're being racist. No one ever thinks that they're 
you know, exercising or practicing microaggressions. And I think that's also rooted in a, a, you know, a deeper discussion about what racism is, because I think, you know, the flaw a lot of people have is, you know, they hear racism, they think like Jim Crow era civil rights imagery, except racism is so much more than that, including all of our, you know, biases and, and cognitive bias and just all of these different aspects of it. And so I think when you kind of recenter the humanity of it all and kind of make it an exercise in practice, I think it's it's just more intentional and more meaningful. She, at one point we were talking about what makes these sustained efforts successful. And she shared the absolute importance of a North Star. And I think that really resonated with me because as you know, at Wistia, we we had a three-year DE&I plan with a whole bunch of initiatives that uh, we were really excited about coming into 2019 and then working on in, in 2019 and 2020. And we picked up that work again this year and focused on a North Star because I think, you know, we talked to Krista after after we did mm-hmm. this, but I think one of the reasons we were not as successful as we could be sustaining the efforts and making sure that they were interwoven into everything that we do versus just some one-off initiatives is because before this year, we didn't really have a North Star of where we were going that was clear for the company. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like, I wish we had talked to you you know, two <laughs> years ago, a year and a half ago, uh, because coming up with that statement, I don't know what your experience was, but but for me, that was like, it's it's hard to to think about that. Like, yeah, it's hard to articulate what you want to do and how you want to do it. For sure. But I I do agree that I wish we had, uh, you know, crossed paths earlier than we did. But at the same time, it was kind of it, it was reassuring and, and served as uh, at least a, an initial confirmation of of the steps we're already taking like that that was comforting for me to hear that it's you know kind of like the very clearly outlined steps about how to accomplish this in a meaningful and sustainable way were things that we've already begun to do you know the i don't want to make any insinuation that the work is done but at least where we've started you know to me it was it was it was good to hear so at least we're we're, we're doing something right at least (laughs) at least to start we we will make mistakes (laughs) along the way but uh, it's always always good to get a, a solid start. Yeah, I definitely incorporated, as we were talking about this company-wide, some of what she shared in her messaging for the company, because I think it hadn't really connected for me some aspects of of why the North Star vision is important. And one of the things she said was, basically, we need to be able to recalibrate and reorient when things go a little off path, Mm -hmm. or at least that was my impression of, of what she was saying. And I think that's helpful for, for folks at Wistia and at other companies understands that the vision statement isn't just there to be this big thing on the wall or, um, inaccessible. It's the thing to help you get back on track when you try something and it doesn't work or you try something and it doesn't work the way that you wanted it to, to go back and feel like, okay, but I still know where we're going. So let's aim that way and and figure it out. And it creates accountability too. Like, you know, you're measuring yourself against that. Otherwise you're just kind of like wading through uncharted waters and you don't have anything to come back to. So she said something else that really stuck with me as well about the, uh, not just about the North star, but about like the intention behind the work being about people and that like, you cannot really decouple people from this work. And I think the way she phrased it was all companies and businesses are, are just collections of people. And even though that sounds like such a simple statement, I'm not sure that's how a lot of people think about work or the professional space. And, you know, everyone's thinking about the business first and that it's this entity and people work for that entity, except that 
any business that has ever existed is comprised one way or another of people. And I, I think, you know, making sure that that is recentered and the people are your focus and acknowledging that no meaningful work can come without the centering of the humanity of the folks that work for you, with you, alongside you. That was a big takeaway for me. And in a lot of the discussions that we've had, that's something that I try to um, always resurface and kind of keep at the forefront. And lastly, don't be afraid. Like, don't be afraid to take this work on and don't be afraid to make mistakes. That is with a caveat that is, you know, uh, you, you should af be afraid to be racist, I guess. But it's it's more understand your intention, understand your goals, and and don't be afraid of failure because that really is a part of the process. So that's a that's just a, a major point that I would really recommend and and hope that people take away from this is that it can be intimidating and you know, it, it can feel very daunting, especially if it's something that your particular business or company is taking on for the first time. But I would hope that it can serve as more motivational than fearful. A Better Workplace is a production of Wistia Studios. This episode was written by Jane Jackson and Ron Dawson. We're produced by Ron Dawson. This episode was mixed by Jarrett Floyd. Your hosts were me, Jane Jackson, and Colin Denny. Huge thanks to Krista Wilson for coming on the show. We'll have a link to her website in the show notes so you can learn more about her and her work. A Better Workplace is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And wherever you listen to podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. If you want to check out other podcasts and more content from Wistia Studios, head on over to wistia.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.